Hyundai Industries production. Wanda Reads Podcast. Hey there. This is Charlie, the founder of Wanda Industries, an advocacy group to end human trafficking. You're listening to Wanda Reads, a media literacy podcast. With me are my co-conspirators, Alicia and Zoe. Hi, this is Alicia. This episode is super special as it relates to the upcoming U.S. general election, like literally everything else in the news these days. We thought it would be helpful to break down ballot measures from a media literacy perspective. So not only for us, but for everyone else who will be impacted by the measures, which when you think about it is everyone. Hey, this is Zoe. And yes, while the presidential election is important, media tends to overlook discussing local ballot measures and state measures, which tend to impact citizens more directly. It's actually kind of embarrassing, but I had to look up the difference between what the federal and state governments manage, which leads me to my next point. We are not experts. We are regular people who are trying to figure out this media literacy stuff together. And we are aware that we have biases, but during the podcast, um, we want to call them out and be honest. So hopefully you can enjoy this with us. Yes. We're just like the average listeners of this podcast with access to the same information. Actually, I think you two probably know more about this than I do because I'm not even American. True. Well, hopefully true. Um, yeah. So since one day's mission is to end human trafficking, we've pulled the ballot measures we thought would be most impactful to marginalized communities. And um, we'll share a framework for thinking about them. So for this episode, we're covering Oregon's Measure 110 and California's Proposition 17. We'll also have an election guide available for you to see all of the measures across the nation that we found impactful. We chose these measures based on how they'd impact already marginalized communities through criminalization or financial burdens for example. For context, the major environmental factors that lead to trafficking are homelessness, poverty, addiction, trauma, and a lack of support systems. Before we... (laughs) Sorry. Before we dig in, I want to acknowledge those not voting. I don't mean the people who don't feel like voting, but there are a lot of people who can't vote because they've been disenfranchised by the system itself. Voter suppression is real. This is just one example. But in 2013, the Supreme Court overturned two provisions from the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which had previously required states to get federal clearance before changing their voting laws. As a result, some states closed down hundreds of polling places, limiting access for thousands of people. So that's one thing to keep in mind before shaming someone who doesn't vote. If you can vote, please, for the love of life, do it. Do it to protect the rights of these people and your own. Absolutely. But there's also another camp of disenfranchised people who don't want to engage in the system whatsoever. So this perspective is primarily from Indigenous and First Nations people who call out the system for its ineffectiveness to protect all. Regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, they see the colonial settler society as harmful to everyone. So they view its existence as a direct attack on their presence as a sovereign nation. We have to remember that this system of voting or, you know, no taxation without representation was created by a group of white dudes who at the time very, very explicitly did not mean representation for everyone. Dudes who just, you know, showed up one day here and said, this is mine now. Uh, Indigenous people weren't eligible even to vote in all states until 1957. 
So um, those who subscribe to this perspective um, view participation without completely changing the system as it is, as feeding into their continued disenfranchisement. Damn, America. This needs to get it together. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> I can appreciate that perspective for sure. I'm still going to vote because I think it's the best allocation of my power right now. But that doesn't mean I'm not totally down to disrupt the system in another way. I encourage people to check out Indigenous spaces to observe and consider those perspectives. Definitely do not go and vomit your opinions on them because they've probably heard it all before. We'll include references in our episode description as well as some examples of Indigenous spaces. So we're using Ballotpedia to access these measures. They call themselves the Digital Encyclopedia of American Politics, and they're pretty awesome. It's a nonprofit resource that provides neutral info on each measure. And fun fact, they give a readability score to all of the measures, and most of them are several grades above a high school reading level. So the fact that these measures are challenging to read on top of the complexity of their impact is why we need to take the extra step to assess them critically. On that note, um, let's get into these ballot measures. So to think critically about the intention behind these measures, we're going to approach this with just a few things in mind. So we, we will look at each measure thinking we want to know who wrote the measure, who supports and opposes it, who benefits from it or will be negatively impacted by it, and what context is given for the ballot, as well as what's missing from the context. Okay, so the first measure we are focusing on is from the state of Oregon. Measure 110, Drug Decriminalization and Addiction Treatment Initiative. This measure is an initiated state statute and is as follows. Provide statewide addiction and recovery services, marijuana tax partially finance, reclassifies possession and penalties for specific drugs. A yes vote provides addiction recovery centers and services, marijuana taxes partially finance, uh, in brackets, uh, reduces revenues for other purposes, and then furthermore, reclassifies possession of specific drugs, reduces penalties, requires audits. A no vote rejects requiring addiction recovery centers and services, retains current marijuana tax revenues uses, maintains current classifications and penalties for possessions of drugs. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, an initiate state statute is when the general public commits enough signatures in a petition for a measure to make it onto the ballot. So it's a true example of direct democracy. Um, Ballotpedia's highlights suggest that it takes around a million dollars to collect enough signatures for one of these initiate statutes. So it ranges a lot from year to year, but those numbers are from 2018. So looking at the measure, the first thing we want to address is who wrote it? And in this case, it was three people who were in the field helping people, or no, excuse me, it was two people in the field helping people with addiction and one draw, uh, wow, I can't talk, one <laughs> drug law form advocate. <laughs> and so the first one is Anthony Johnson. He's the cannabis law reform advocate. He used to be a lawyer. Um, the next person was Haven Wheelock, who was a program coordinator for a needle exchange program. And the third person is Janie Gullickson, an executive director for the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon. So next, we want to look at the people supporting or opposing the measure. Hot tip, always follow the money. Um, the opposition, we're looking at the police uh, and the district attorneys primarily, so the measure expects to decrease around 3,000 convictions, which would, in theory, cut down the need for law enforcement. Um, 
aka police and district attorneys. This could definitely affect their budget. From another angle, the concept of a sliding scale law is kind of a slippery slope for law enforcement, and it would make the job more tedious as it's less black and white. It's so much easier to just say, hey, you've got drugs, you're a criminal, no question. Um, With this measure, there are different levels to possession of drugs, which complicates things in the field. We've also got to think about the other opposition, which is uh, several rehabilitation centers in Oregon. Uh, From what we've read, the measure does mandate that its funding goes to creating completely new treatment centers. So that would definitely affect their income if people now have to go to state mandated centers instead of their um, treatment centers. I can definitely empathize with officers if this complicates like an already tense situation while they're on the field, but I'm not sure that it's enough of a reason to criminalize people. So if we look at the opposing arguments while we're here, one of the arguments is made by State Senator Bill Hansel, 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 TBD. He titles his argument, don't let out-of-state special interests write laws for Oregon. And one of his points is that Measure 110 was drafted by and funded with millions of special interest dollars by an out-of-state group who clearly wants full-on decriminalization of drugs. (laughs) When you look at that, it sounds really sketchy, as if a mysterious bad actor is trying to get its Nasty little hands on Oregon, but in reality, the top sponsor is the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. So these arguments tend to be super emotional, and we have to sift through the stuff that's extra fluffy and without substance. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were researching this, another argument that struck me was from Dr. Paul Kolho, also TBD on how the pronunciation <laughs> is on that, but his title as a doctor gives him some credibility on the surface. However, A quick Google search actually brought up some spicy drama, which I'll get to in a second. But without including where he got it from, his argument references statistics that 80% of opioid and meth users will reject help and says that removing the threat of incarceration and abandoning collaboration between law enforcement, probation, and the drug court system will result in a revolving door of drug abuse. The whole argument just uses a lot of technical language outside of that quote as well. And... What he says actually does sound pretty rational and fair until you remember that the alternative is incarcerating the sick person who apparently is willing to do anything to get their drugs. And so that probably doesn't stop the abuse either. You also can do a two second Internet search and read reviews from past patients about how dismissive, belligerent and borderline abusive their experiences have been with this doctor. A quote from one patient says, This guy needs to get out of this line of business if he's going to treat everyone that walks through his door as a drug seeker. That review is actually from 2015. So statistics can be misleading without all of the context. We'll address context a um, a little later in the discussion, but the statistics in this doctor's argument don't account for his personal bias. Right. Um, And in court, each side is always going to bring in a a certain authority figure to prove credibility to their argument. So you have to think about the specialists they bring in. You can't just take their title at face value. You also have to think about themselves, their own biases, and yeah, their own exactly. career. Exactly. And plenty of reputable sources spouting incorrect information like <laughs> New York Times. Oh. <clears throat> Sorry. I had something <laughs> in my throat. That was bad. Sorry. Um, uh, on the flip side, we've uh, got a lot of supporters for this measure. The Net Democratic party working families party several unions from nurses social workers to school psychologists and many organizations as well 
Um, a lot of the organizations seem to represent people of color, like the ACLU, NAACP, and the Confederate tribes of Grande Ronde. Is that how you say it? Grande Ronde. Yeah, it works. It's most, yeah, it's mostly nonprofits that support this measure. Uh, there was a quote by Thisha Naidu, Managing Director of Com- Criminal Justice Law and Policy of Drug Policy Action, had a nice quote stating, People suffering from addiction need help, not criminal punishments. Instead of arresting and jailing people from using drugs, the measure would fund a range of services to help people get their lives back on track. I would like to add that this is heading in the same direction as what is already in place in the Netherlands, making them one of the leading countries with the lowest prison population in the world. But we will get into that a bit later or another time. So this leads into who benefits from the measure, which are people who may be caught with drugs in the future, uh, addicts that need counselling instead of incarceration, people interested in drug policy reform, and people who may be unfairly targeted for arrest. Uh, I had to look this up, but black people make up 2% of Oregon's population, but 10% of the prison population in Oregon. Yeah, which honestly doesn't really surprise me. Um, Oregon has a history of being founded by the KKK and was dubbed one of the whitest states in the country. It was also the only state to literally ban black people when it joined the union, which is probably why the black population is still so low today. Uh, An audit in 2011 actually showed landlords discriminate against black and brown lenders, you know, in 2011. So probably still today. History like this isn't included in the ballot, and it does affect the way people behave. And because of that, legislation um, can totally reinforce white supremacy without explicit language. Um, So when we look at who benefits from it or who will be negatively impacted by it, uh, negative impact, it basically complicates things for police officers. It limits their conviction quota. It takes money from the private sector of rehabilitation centers. Positive impact, it would reduce impact, reduces impact of systemic racism for black and brown people, people who might have possession of small amounts of drugs, um, helps advocates of this type of policy in future elections elsewhere as well. That last bit about people who might have possession of small amounts of drugs actually reminds me of this one story that a gal shared with me about how she went to jail senior year of high school over like one nug of weed, something that might have been worth like $20 and also something that I'm sure plenty of people like our age or friends that we know have done before. And if her sister hadn't bailed her out, and I think her bail was set at like $500 or something, she wouldn't have graduated from high school. And she also would have stayed in jail for however many weeks. And you can only imagine the snowball effect that would have on someone's life. So you don't really think about stories Mm. like this right away when you look at the ballot at face value. Yeah, we touched on this a bit already, but to summarize the context that's offered, Ballotpedia shares some info about the impact on criminal justice with regard to race, but it's kind of vague and the measure itself doesn't call this stuff out. It doesn't encompass all the historical context of racism. So in spite of what Ballotpedia offers, there's a lot missing that we'd have to dig up to make the best judgment call. 
Um, so this ballot is also notably missing stats on convictions that happen now with regards to like what types of drugs, the demographic, like who is getting convicted and how often. And it's missing information on the scope of Oregon's drug problem, which upon further research, we know consistently ranks close to the top, if not the top, at multiple times for opiate addiction, heroin and methamphetamine. So I can totally see how someone would miss a lot of this if they only put aside a few minutes to complete the ballot. And I'd say my takeaway is that you have to invest time in understanding history to make the best choices for the future. So with this context, a lot of these measures sound really reactionary rather than preventative. And I'm also kind of suspicious if someone's argument has super fluffy language, (laughs) like, why are you trying to flex, bro? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) let's take a quick break before we jump into the next measure. Yes. We're back and ready to tackle my state. Cali, baby. Yo. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) California Proposition 17, the Voting Rights Restoration for Persons on Parole Amendment, is a legislatively referred constitutional amendment. A yes vote supports allowing people on parole for felony convictions to vote. A no vote opposes and we will continue to prohibit people who are on parole for felony convictions from voting. So, the first measure... Who wrote the measure? Uh, I've got a couple of members here. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. I've only got one member here. Uh, yeah. Uh, Democratic Assembly member for CA, Kevin McCarty, part of the Black Caucus. How do you say it? Mm-hmm. Represented older neighborhoods in Sacramento, advocates for safe housing, gun control, and after-school programs. So I wanted to call out that this measure is a legislatively referred constitutional amendment. And basically, that means that it had to go through the state legislature before it was put on the ballot, a.k.a. our reps voted on this first. So when I see that, I kind of want to think about what motivated the representative to pitch this. In some cases, would it just be a political play? Like, is the rep just trying to capitalize on our current conversations around race Mm. so that people can see what he stood for when he pursues office later? Or is it to genuinely fill a need? You'll never really know 100% what someone's intentions are, but based on what Charlie just said about him, it sounds like he's someone who cares about preventative measures or someone who wants to represent marginalized communities by being part of the Black Caucus. Um, Absolutely. So let's take a look at some of the notable supporters and opposition. Um, There are a lot of supporters to this bill, notably uh, U.S. Senator Kamala D. Harris, ACLU, and the League of Women Voters again, among many others. The opposition is actually quite small. It's just the Republican state senator, Jim Nielsen, and the Republican Party of America. It's sort of interesting to me that Kamala Harris supports this, given her reputation for being on the sidelines Mm. of decarceration. But so, c'est la vie. (laughs) What do I know? (laughs) Okay, so who benefits from it and will be negatively impacted by it? All the people who didn't have the right to vote before benefit... Their voices can be represented. This includes people who unfairly accept guilty plea deals out of fear for minimum sentencing rules. And then furthermore, people who marginalize communities to retain their power will now have to deal with sharing their power. Legislation like this could help reframe the way we view criminals also. It sort of feels like once someone is labeled a criminal, we view them differently whether that's subconsciously or actively, sort of like they become dehumanized to us. 
But we've all committed things that are considered crimes, like being drunk in public or even violation of curfew. Those are both felonies. I've done both of those things. Sorry, mom. <laughs> but just, <laughs> but just because I didn't get caught, I'm still allowed to be human. I think in the context of our psychology or the context of our psychology is something that is important here, but isn't obvious if you're just quickly looking through the ballot. Absolutely. Um, and then what other context is given for the ballot or missing from it is our next point. So the ballot itself doesn't say anything about the racial disparities or the history of incarceration. It doesn't explain the difference between probation versus parole, which is super important in this ballot because it's used as the main argument from the opposition. I had to look up what it was. It's a lot more complicated than we think. Uh, it also doesn't explain what the definition of parole is or um, the felony offenses in California. So what's considered a felony, um, who's eligible for parole and all of that that you really need to know. Yeah, true. The opposing arguments highlighted really violent felony cases like murderers and rapists, but we don't know how much of the prison population are actually violent felons based on what they give us. Right. And we also don't even know if that type of violent felony offense is eligible for parole. Um, it's also just as likely that these felons could have been marijuana dealers, which is now a legitimate business in California. Um, I also think it's worth mentioning, as we kind of touched on earlier, the two common occurrence of wrongful conviction. So I'll have a link to a really great organization called the Innocence Project and other people working to help this. And if you really want to bring it full circle back to human trafficking, um, this is definitely on the least likely side, but a topic in the last few years that's really been surfacing due to the notable cases of Syntonia Brown and Crystal Kaiser is what happens when human trafficking victims murder their traffickers yeah. in self-defense, and then they're put away for life for murder. Um, so again, these are outliers, but they still happen and they have repercussions here. Also, in terms of the context that is provided, it kind of made me LOL <laughs> that the fiscal impact statement was about the cost of ballots. Uh, and they had to point out, I mean, they have to do this just standard, but it seems silly to be like, oh, man, it's going to be so expensive for me to pay for the printing of ballots and election materials. <laughs> now that these underrepresented yeah. people have to be represented, we have to pay thousands of dollars. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, uh, let's take a quick break before we close it out. Okay, welcome back. So just to recap, uh, human trafficking is an intersectional issue. So many different environmental factors can lead to a person being trafficked. Major ones like poverty and addiction also lead to a higher chance of crime. So if the head of your family is arrested, you lose a role model and support system. All of these things play into each other. All these things play into each other and make people susceptible to being trafficked. And at first glance, these measures may seem black or white, but they're not. There's always more to the story. Right. You might think that's an easy choice. Convicted felons are jerks who did something wrong. <laughs> so why should we let them vote? Or oh, drug wow. users <laughs> are sustained on society. Let them rot, damn it. Let them rot. Sorry, I just got really passionate. But um, some felons might not have done anything we wouldn't do. Or may have been wrongfully convicted in the first place. And some drug users also might not have done something we wouldn't do. 
Exactly. We chose Oregon Measure 110 and California Proposition 17 because they touch on all the social issues that fuel human trafficking. Even though they don't explicitly mention human trafficking on the ballot, your voting power can save lives. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're releasing an election guide that covers all the measures we think will impact marginalized people and ultimately traffic people. Until then, follow us on Instagram at one day underscore IND and check out our references in our episode description. One Day sits on research, education, and community outreach from people like you. Woohoo! Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Charlie, you didn't want to share your perspective on how you felt discussing these measures. What? Sorry, what? <laughs>